Well, we entered a new season in the Rody household last weekend. We welcomed our, our first dog, our first puppy, Rutley, in, into our family, and it was one of those but now moments I mentioned last Sunday, where there's a, a plot change in, in our lives or a plot change in our story where our lives looked one way, but now it looks different. It, it's been a fun week. It's one word, one word to use. Uh, it's forced our, our household to learn how to adapt. Our kids are adjusting. And, and they're learning that having a pet in the house isn't all fun and games, that there's actually work you have to do with a pet. Haley has never had a dog before, and she's learning to set boundaries with him, and mostly learning to deal with sharp puppy teeth. And I've been on 3 a.m. potty duty. It's been an adjustment. The first paragraphs of Romans are all about Paul's belief that we, we can't really begin to understand God's grace until we grasp our deep need for it. So he starts with talking all about God's wrath and, and judgment and, and about the law, something he spends a good amount of his time in his life trying to uphold. And he says, you know what, we've got to understand that before we get to grace. We've got to understand that before we, we understand our deep need for God's grace. That, that no one is, is perfect. No one's, no one's really good. That, that no one is righteous on their own merit. Now, read out of context, I, I've, I've said that that beginning of Romans is pretty harsh. It's, it's pretty dark. But then we get to Romans 3.21. And one of those but now moments. But now. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. Paul writes, but now, apart from the law, righteousness of God has been made known through what Jesus has done for us. But now, all of the things that Moses and the other prophets talked about, all of the things that they witnessed to, all of the things they prophesied about, but now, that all has come into fruition. But now... Out of sheer generosity and pure love, God did for us and for others what no one else could have done. But now, that, that good news, it has arrived. Paul announces a new reality and reminds his readers that, that we're atoned for, that we are redeemed, and that we are justified through Christ. He continues as we, we begin to see in, in our first, or as we began to see, I should say, in our first reading this morning, was saying, yes, yes, we live in this new reality. But justification has always come through faith and through faith alone. Justification has always come through faith and faith alone. The, the whole of Scripture tells God's story, tells the story of God's commitment to God's people. And the way that people have historically responded, sometimes in faith, sometimes not so much, but that it's always our faith, our faith in God and God's faith in us, meaning God's commitment to us. To the first readers of Romans, Abraham was one of those, those people that God entrusted with, with God's plan. And he responded out of complete devotion, complete obedience 
In the first 17 verses of Romans 4, Paul sets up the idea of justification by faith next to three pretty, pretty common Jewish beliefs or practices. And he uses Abraham's life to, to illustrate them. Those, those three, three kind of practices, those three kind of things that he talks about first is, is good works. The first part of the chapter, what Daryl read earlier, Paul answers a question that many of the other religious leaders of the day would have asked. So are you really saying, Paul, are you really saying that God will forgive a Gentile who believes in Jesus, but ignore our father Abraham because he came before Christ? Doesn't all of Abraham's hard work, doesn't everything that, that... the father of faith did, doesn't that count for something? All of the work that he did, doesn't it count? And Paul says, God didn't declare Abraham righteous because he was dedicated, because he was a hard worker. His acceptance comes as through his faithfulness. God's faithfulness to him, Abraham's faithfulness to God. But what about ritual? What about circumcision? The sign of the covenant. What about that? Whenever I officiate a wedding, I I typically hold up the the groom's wedding ring. And I talk about how it's a symbol, a a circle. And I talk about what that all means and how it's supposed to constantly remind them of the commitment the couple were making to one another during that time. For Paul, for his contemporaries, circumcision served in a similar manner. Today, in our tradition, when we baptize infants... We're reminding ourselves of the same sort of thing. We're saying, this is about God's promise. God's promise to God's people. That's why we baptize infants. We're saying God is already moving in this child's life before the child has the ability to respond because God is committed to this child. God's faithfulness. So Paul thinks about Abraham and he says, look, Abraham's call, it began years before his circumcision. Circumcision came really late in Abraham's life. His call began way, way before then. Well, what, about, what about our heritage? What about the law? We're the people of the law. We are, we, we, we're important people, aren't we? Paul answers another hypothetical question that the, the Jewish Christians would have asked. They'd say, we, we know God wants us to live righteous and holy lives, to be set apart because we are a set apart people, to obey his word. So don't we need to continue to be obedient to the law? And Paul says, well, look at Abraham's life. Look at God's covenant. Abraham's promise was a gift and it was given to him well before the law was received. So faith is a gift that comes before and after the law. It's still an important thing. It's always been important. But faith is a gift that came before the law, that comes after the law. And Paul builds off of these three realities when he moves to, to verses 18 through 25, where we are going to be this morning. And when we get to the last chapter or the last paragraph of chapter four, Paul describes how Abraham and, and Sarah, how their faith actually looked, how they lived it out. He writes this against all hope, Abraham and hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. 
Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will give will credit righteousness for us who believe in him, who raised Jesus, our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Matthew chapter 19, we read about an encounter with, with Jesus and a rich young ruler. Jesus is walking along the road in Judea when a man approaches him and says, Teacher, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus engages them. They have a conversation about following the commandments. And eventually Jesus says, Look, if you really want to follow them, if, if you really want to, if you really want to be, to be perfect, go sell everything you have. Go, go give it away. Then come and follow me. The man walks away discouraged, and Jesus turns to the disciples to, to debrief what had just happened. After saying that it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, the disciples say, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, who then can be saved? What, what about us? We, we've, we've been with you. What, what, about, what about us? And Jesus responds, for humans, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. When Paul writes about faith in Romans, he's asking, I should say answering a question that's similar to what the disciples ask Jesus when they say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What, what, what about us? What are we to do? That, that who can be saved? How does it happen? How is someone made right with God? How? Abraham's life is the, the perfect illustration for that, that line of questioning. And, and Paul, he, he, he knew the, the church in Rome. He, he knew it out of his own life. He knew that it was the perfect example. Now, there's at least two components of Abraham's faith discussed here at the end of chapter 4 that, that would have been repeatable in first century Rome, and, and I think there are examples that we can actually live into today as well. But first, he, he held on to hope. My guess is that, that we all know one of those people. Actually, we can do by a raise of hand. Do you know one of those people who's just always optimistic? One of those people who's just always half, cup half full, not cup half empty. Just always looking on the bright side of things. The sort of person who keeps smiling and going no matter what, even in the midst, even in the midst of these last two years. Hey, how are you, how, how are you taking this whole COVID shutdown? Oh, I'm great. But, but not just putting on a smile. They actually mean it and they actually are. Th- those sorts of people. And not because they always know that things are going to work out in their favor. It's usually because they understand that they can only do what they can do. They know their boundaries. This is what I can do and I'm good with it. And everything else, it's, it's, it's not in my control. Often it's because they grasp that, that God indeed is faithful regardless of what they can see or not see. My mom is one of those, those people. 
I was four. My sister was seven. The first time she was diagnosed with cancer. We really didn't know what was going on. We didn't, we didn't witness the, the tears that she shared with my dad. We didn't hear the conversations she had with her doctors. All we saw was a woman who was going to battle each and every day. When I was 19, her cancer returned again. Again, I was floored by how confident she was. And when I'd ask her about it, she would say, when you were four, my prayer was that I'd live five more years. Till you and your sister were nine and 12. It's been 15. She was scared. But the whole time, her hope was tangible. We could feel it. She knew that, that God was in control, even if, even if she, she didn't, wasn't comfortable with it. She still approaches life this way. And she's often telling me, like, come on, be, be a cup half full person. I'm like, ah, just not wired that way. Some of us are, some of us aren't. J.R. comes to mind. Kim, you can tell him that I, I'm giving him kudos. J.R. comes to mind. He's at camp with our, our high school students today. But every time our staff sits down to have our staff meeting every other week, we say how we're doing. We give ourselves a scale. I call it the J.R. scale. On one to J.R., how you're doing. Because every time we sit down, J.R. is great. He's great and the world is doing great and God is faithful. So we call it the one to J.R. scale. When we look at Abraham and Sarah's story, it's easy to see how they could have lost hope. It's easy to see how they, they, they could have said, you know what? We are way past, this is impossible. We're way past childbearing years. It's, it's, we read that story, I, I, that would be me. And Paul says, against all hope, in hope, he believed. Abraham doesn't ignore the realities of his situation. He doesn't even water it down. He says, how is this going to happen? He's realistic. How is this going to happen? He knew that it didn't make sense, and yet he faced those facts that it didn't make sense while holding on to hope. What does that look like for us today? To look around at everything that we see. It is a hard world that we live in right now. How do we look around at all the things and not get bogged down in those things, but to say, you know what? God's in control. God is in control. Abraham's faith, the sort of faith that, that Paul is addressing, it, it doesn't appear to make any sense. It invites us to, to trust God in a way that is not easy. It invites us to live our lives in a way where we're not shaped by the circumstances around us, but by, by, by who God is and what God has promised us. Where we're, we're not shaped by our circumstance, we're not shaped by the tyranny of the urgent, we are shaped by God's faithfulness to us. What does it look like for us to live that way, to cling to that sort of hope? The second component of Abraham's faith is connected to the first. It has to do with who he believed. Who he believed. Paul writes, Abraham didn't waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what God had promised. Now, the word faith can carry all kinds of connotations and it can create all kinds of conversations. 
When you hear the word faith, what do you think of? Any of you think of George Michael's God have faith, faith, faith? I was thinking about that where I was writing this, this song, which was kind of an odd thing, but it's true. I was. Churches celebrate people like Abraham who are, are kind of the heroes of faith. Pastors stand up on Sunday and they encourage their people to have faith. We talk about the different types of faith. Faltering sports teams that we follow remind us to keep the faith. Now in all of those expressions, all of those uses of the word faith, we often miss something important. What is the object of our faith when we talk in those, those ways? What, what's the object of our faith? And it's the object that matters most. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we, we all have faith in something. And Paul is pretty explicit about where Abraham placed his, his faith. Chapter 4, verse 17, he writes, Abraham is our father in, sight, in the sight of God, whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. The object of Abraham's faith is the God who gives life to the dead and who calls things into being. I think we often focus on the wrong thing when we, we talk about Abraham and we, we talk about faith. We talk about the, the depth of his faith, the amount of faith that he had. But the reality is we don't have to look too far into his, his life story to see that there are multiple, multiple times where he and, and Sarah, where they faltered. There's Hagar and Ishmael. There's the time, the two times, more than once, where, where Abraham gave Sarah, his wife, away to Pharaoh and King Abimelech. It's safe to say that he was afraid, and at the very least, nervous about God's plan for him. Well, if God, I know you gave me this plan, but it's not really working out in my time. So I'm, I'm going to kind of help you out a little bit. He did the same sort of thing that we tend to do when we struggle with God, when we struggle with God's timing. He took it into his own hands and essentially said, God, yeah. This is taking a little long. I've got this. We need to remember that it's not necessarily about the strength of Abraham's faith or his lack of faith, if that's what you want to use. It's about who his faith was in, where he placed his faith, even when he wrestled about how that looked in his own life, about how he lived it out on the daily basis. Now, we live in a world where there are all kinds of things competing for our faith, all kinds of things that are begging to be the objects of our faith. Relationships, technological advancements, politicians, other leaders. And if we're not careful, instead of giving or having faith in the creator of those things, the creator of those, those people, we slip into having faith in the created things. We do the same thing the Israelites did when, when Moses went up the mountain and left Aaron with everybody else down around and they created the golden calf. We say, God, your time is not working out, so we're going we're gonna to do something on our own. Now, Abraham's faith, it, it does increase throughout his lifetime. I think it's a great example of, of what it looks like to be constantly growing in our faith journey. We are called to constantly grow in our faith journey. But we can't ignore the reality that God always remained the object of his faith. 
So Paul, he finishes this chapter by saying that Abraham, he's, he's not just a historical figure that the, the Jewish Christians in, in Rome would have known. His faith wasn't just for him. His faith wasn't just for his family. His faith w- was bigger than that. His faith set the tone for a people for generations. It set the tone for, for the first century church in Rome. It, it set the tone for us today. God was the object of that faith. And Abraham was, was confident that God is the one who gives life to the dead and who calls things into existence. And Abraham knew that God is the one who, who gives hope when all seems hopeless. So this week, I, I want to invite us to think through, where do you place your faith? What is the object of your faith? And I want to remind us to think about hope. What does it look like for us to be shaped by that faith and not, not the circumstances we find ourselves in? Let's pray. Loving God, help us to be a people who place our faith in you and in you alone. May we live with hope knowing that we, can see, we can't see the whole picture, but you, you can. And as we come to the table in a few moments, may the bread and the cup be a symbol of our faith. May it remind us that you are with us and may it empower us to share your love in a world that desperately needs it. We pray these things in your name. Amen.